From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this Wednesday edition of Washington Watch, Thanksgiving Eve. Amazing how rapidly this year has flown by, but welcome and happy Thanksgiving to each of you. I'm Jody Heiss, the Senior Vice President here at the Family Research Council, and a great honor to be sitting in this evening for Tony, and thank you for making us part of your day as we head into Thanksgiving with our hearts filled with gratitude to God for all he has done for us. All right, coming up on this edition of Washington Watch, a recent New York Times editorial has finally conceded what they did not want to admit, simply that the COVID shutdowns were a disaster for American students. Well, now that the legacy media has recognized a problem, how can we now address the needs of struggling students? Well, FRC's Meg Kilgannon will join me to discuss that here in just a moment. And when Chinese President Xi Jinping came to California last week for a diplomatic summit, you may be surprised to know that American CEOs literally whooped with applause and gave him a standing ovation, a standing ovation to a communist dictator choosing profits over patriotism. Well, that certainly is something that we have come to expect from the billionaire class. And a little bit later in the program, Seamus Bruner will be joining me to discuss his new book entitled Controligarchs. It exposes these billionaires and their efforts to control American life. And despite all the troubles we see on a daily basis, it's comforting to know that we serve a God who controls everything. And he is the one who blesses us day by day. This Thanksgiving season, we want to pause to give thanks to God with open and grateful hearts. Dr. Paul Jaley is the executive director of the Plymouth Rock Foundation. He will be joining me to discuss the truth behind the pilgrims coming to America and what we can learn from the pilgrims for addressing problems that's facing our culture today. So we've got a lot to cover on today's program. Don't forget our website is TonyPerkins.com. If you miss any portion of today's program or you want to check out past shows and also be aware there are a lot of resources there available for you at TonyPerkins.com. All right, let's go in and jump into this edition of the program. As I mentioned a moment ago, the New York Times editorial board has confirmed what many of us have known all along and they had an article entitled, The Startling Evidence on Learning Loss is In. That says a lot. And look, it's tempting for some of us absolutely to roll our eyes saying, all right, where have you been? We all have known that there was an enormous learning loss due to COVID and school shutdowns. Why are you just now coming to this information so late? Uh, But look, it cannot be denied that the New York Times literally sets the agenda for the legacy media as well as uh, defines the narrative for the left. Uh, We all know that. So what have they finally conceded about learning loss from the COVID-era school closures? Well, joining me now to discuss this and more is Meg Kilgannon. She's a senior fellow for education studies here at the Family Research Council. She also served in the Department of Education during the Trump administration. Meg, welcome back to Washington Watch. 
Thanks for having me back, Jody. It's great to see you. It's always great to see you as well. All right, let's jump into this. Here we are. Uh, it was, what, 19 months ago, a year and a half ago at least, that the uh, New York Times read a, uh, ran a headline that uh, said, parents stopped talking about the lost year. Uh, right. And now they looks like they have had an about face. Are they finally admitting that there were destructive outcomes from school closures due to COVID? Well, I don't think for, for those of us with our with our uh, biblical worldviews, Tony, it's no surprise that um, that once again, the public school system has been in the service of the agenda of adults rather than in the service of children, right? And the New York Times is is confirming this for us, which we already know. Um, the 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 amazing thing about the article about about the New York Times position before was that you if you in, implied that somehow shutting down the economy that the schools that, that government that everything was going to be bad for people you were part of the problem <laughs> and it, it it now that they are letting us think these things or acknowledging that these things are true um, it, it's quite telling. Yeah, it's interesting to me along this whole thing that the uh, the article that I referenced that you you referenced as well, the startling evidence on learning loss is in. All right, that that's a pretty strong statement. But they have since changed the title of that article, and now now the name is how to help your adolescent think about last year. Uh, oh, amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So now well, we, we've gone to the startling truth to. Oh, Let's help your adolescent think about last year a little bit different. So you know, let, let's try to get into it. What what are they saying in this article? Let's try to break it down for us. The uh, when I arrived at the Department of Education in uh, May of of twenty twenty, actually, it was not a brief time there, but I learned a lot. Uh, we were really trying to get the schools open, and there was just all this infrastructure that was not going to allow the schools to be reopened, right? And so what the article is saying is that now, oh, gee, we really messed up. Uh, we, we, we didn't, kids, turns out kids aren't as resilient as we told everyone they were, <laughs> that, that stopping them from learning really does harm their lives and um, really does limit their potential. And this is going to be a drag on the future economy. And um this is a, great for them to acknowledge now um, that the solutions that they're offering in this article are not going to be enough. I fear um, what what really needs what we really need to do is first the first step is of course acknowledging the problem which they've done, and there needs to be remediation. Maybe we need to have some grades that aren't passed into the next grade. Maybe we need to offer curriculum from the previous grades to whatever current grade the child is in, right? There's a lot of things that we can do to re to address this problem. Um, and for the children whose parents cannot get them out of a public school system, uh, we we really want to make sure that those kids are are well served. And the 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 tutoring programs that are being suggested now, um, the the online learning programs that are being suggested now will will help some kids, but other kids will be left behind. Well, and and many of them have been left behind. I mean, you're exactly right. I saw 
that uh, the progress, student progress in things like math and reading are as back as have been set back as much as two decades. I mean, this is this is stunning for to for obviously that can't be for an individual, but for for national standards, we've we've seen an enormous setback in math and reading, and obviously that is reflective of individual students. But also, Meg, and this is something that rarely is talked about, COVID and the school closures got students accustomed to not going to school. And now that schools have reopened, we are seeing school attendance literally, it's just cratered. How do we recoup this and get students actually to go back to school at this point? Well, the important thing in this case is not to listen to the people who tell you that the children aren't going to school because the school doesn't represent them or doesn't reflect their life story or what have you. They don't see themselves in the curriculum and all of the critical race theory tropes that we're all too familiar with now. Um, The kids are voting with their feet for many reasons. There's a crisis in the family, for sure. And um, But when, when you have high school kids who are just, you know, chronically absent, missing most of the school year, in fact. They're doing it because, one, they know they can get away with it. They know they'll be passed through to the next grade and and that they will get this degree that doesn't really mean much in those cases. So there's no consequence, really, for for their absenteeism, unfortunately. But also, what they are being taught isn't isn't helping them. I think they don't want to hear any more about how they're not seen in the curriculum. I don't think they really care about cultural competency. I think if we were offering children education that really was aspirational, that that talked about big questions that matter, what it, why is this person here on earth? What are they supposed to be doing with their lives? What gifts have they been given by God? If we can say God, if we can't say God, what gifts have they been given? by by their circumstances and, and the, the, just the, the beauty of themselves that they can use in service of others in the world. How, how can we reach children? It, it, adolescents want to do big things. Their whole work of adolescence is figuring out what you're going to do with your life. And it, telling kids that they're either oppressors or oppressed and that there's no way for them to get out of those two categories is not helping answer that question of what to do with your life. So um, until schools can can offer something better than that kind of gruel, I think you're going to continue to see voting with their feet and leaving schools that are failing. Really good points, Meg. And, you know, I saw that uh, the CDC came out that uh, with a report indicating that some 40 percent of high school students had persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, as many as 22 percent had seriously considered suicide. 10% reported that they had actually attempted suicide. I mean, the the devastation from what we experienced has gone far beyond what most people realize. I want to play a quick clip for you, and I know our time is running out, but uh, White House Press Secretary uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre made it sound like the Trump administration was focused on shutting things down and not opening it up. I'd love to play this clip and get your reaction to it. Let's not forget when the president walked into this administration, uh, the economy was at a tailspin. 
Uh, and that was because of what the last administration did. And so we had small businesses were shut down. We had schools, where majority of schools were shut down. Large jobs were lost. And uh, the pandemic was not under, con under control. Unbelievable. Set the record straight for us, please. Lots of people wanted the schools to be reopened, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, who we argue with a lot over questions like gender identity. They wanted the schools to be reopened. We all knew that this was not good for children, but what the children, children are always subject to the adults who are running the world. <laughs> and when we let adults run the world who are interested in political goals first, then we're going to have outcomes like this. And that was certainly part and parcel of the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association. We're all working in cooperation with the CDC to establish guidelines that kept schools closed. And now our children are going to pay the price for those decisions. The good news is that if we can get out of our own way and allow Jesus to let the children come to him, allow ourselves to let that happen and to, to make an educational system where that's possible, um, we can recover these losses and have a better, brighter future. Absolutely. Meg Kilgannon, thank you so much for joining us on this edition and bringing this in incredibly important information our way. Now's the time. Uh, we, it's time for the body of Christ, for Christians to stand up and minister to the, our children and those around us with the love of Jesus, for sure. Thank you so much, Meg. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you, Jody. Happy Thanksgiving. All right, friends, coming up last week, we saw American CEOs roaring with a standing ovation for a Chinese dictator. Seamus Bruner will be joining me right after the book was his new book, which explains why this should not be a surprise. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. For 40 years, Family Research Council has been in Washington, D.C., championing faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture from a biblical worldview. But it isn't easy. As the culture continues to become increasingly divided, believers must continue defending biblical truth while many on the left wish to silence and marginalize Christians. Will you join us? Your financial support has never been more important. Thanks to your partnership, we can continue to reach more Americans with the important news from Washington, D.C. Equip believers to stand firm in our culture and defend biblical truth in the halls of government. Every donation we receive will go towards preserving and advancing policies for a culture that honors faith, family, and freedom. To give, text the word GIVE to 67742. Again, text GIVE to 67742. Don't miss Family Research Council's new podcast, Outstanding. Brought to you by FRC's team at The Washington Stand, this podcast is designed to examine top news stories and cultural issues from a distinctly biblical worldview with an aim to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Join host and senior fellow for biblical worldview, Joseph Backholm, as he examines recent developments and cultural phenomena through the lens of Scripture and explores how Christians should respond. New guests join the podcast every week to unpack the headlines and discuss what's going on in the world. Topics range from recent political developments to social issues and spiritual battles. We invite you to follow along with these critical conversations as we release new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. You don't want to miss it. 
to listen, go to WashingtonStand.com slash podcast slash outstanding. And be sure to look for the Outstanding Podcast on your favorite podcasting app today. Join Family Research Council's Association of Churches and Ministries, a community of pastors and ministry leaders united in refusing to hide their faith in Jesus from those that would try to silence us. As we face an increasingly hostile culture, the Association of Churches and Ministries provides invaluable resources and a powerful platform to grow and be equipped for the ministry God has entrusted to you. Together, we will stand firm, united in faith. Visit acm.frc.org and become a member today. Are you tired of the mainstream media censoring Christian and conservative voices? Are you looking for news about the most important topics of the day, presented to you through the lens of biblical truth? We have the solution. The Washington Stand, Family Research Council's outlet for news and commentary from a biblical worldview. You can subscribe to receive the latest news from The Washington Stand in your inbox every weekday morning by texting TWS to 67742 or by visiting WashingtonStand.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Jody Heiss. Thank you again for joining us this afternoon. All right. Imagine a world in which you own nothing and rent everything. Most of the protein in your diet comes from bugs. You're not allowed to have more than one child. And your financial and medical data are instantly transferred to a centralized government database via a subdernal microchip. What a frightening scenario. But could this actually turn into a nightmare of reality? Well, there are some people who are certainly working to make that happen. And joining me now to discuss this is Seamus Bruner. He's the author of a recently released book entitled Controligarchs, Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals, and the Globalist Plot to Dominate Your Life. He's also the Associate Director of Research at the Government Accountability Institute. Seamus, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you. Hey, Jody. It's great to be with you. All right. Well, listen, I love the title of your book, by the way. So let's just start there. Define for us what exactly is a controligarch. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're uh, the oligarchs, the extremely wealthy, I mean, unfathomably wealthy individuals. Uh, but we don't have a problem with wealthy individuals. I mean, capitalism is a great system. The problem is these folks want to upend capitalism and they want to uh, control every aspect of your life. I mean, I'll give you an example, the energy industry. They are right now trying to implement and succeeding in uh, putting in these green technologies that are going to make your life a whole lot worse. For example, imagine waking up in the middle of the night, it's winter now, and you're shivering, you're cold, you go to the thermostat, you try to turn on the heat, but you can't, you've been locked out, you've got no control over your thermostat. Now that may sound like a you know dystopian future, far away science fiction, just ask the residents of Colorado, Texas, and California who have all been locked out of their so-called smart thermostats. And so men like Jeff Bezos with his Alexa and Amazon uh, home thermostat smart systems and the Google Nest, they're all working on this technology. It's already here. Yeah, you know, I've I've been seeing so much of this type of thing, and I'm so grateful that you've you've done the research and now you've put all this together for us in a book. 
But, you know, one of the things that I've been looking and seeing a lot of articles on is uh, the issue of obviously human survival is is based upon food. And yet we have Microsoft founder Bill Gates has spent, what, close to $12 billion in some sort of food takeover scheme, it appears. Is this part of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's all done under the guise of saving the planet. It's, you know, quite an ambitious goal. Um, but what we found is that Bill Gates has dusted off an old Microsoft strategy from the 90s called Embrace, Extend, Extinguish. Microsoft used that to corner various industries, the internet browser industry, for example. And so how it works is like this. Bill Gates enters into a market, the agriculture and food protein market. He it, you know, embraces the standards of the time, acts like he's not making too many waves. He then extends his reach buys up more and more farmland, buys up more and more companies that are making these fake meats like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, and then comes the extinguish phase. And you can just ask any farmer today uh, if the climate change regulations that are coming down the pike are going to put them out of business or not. It already has put a lot of farmers out of business. And they say that it's about sustainability. Bill Gates makes it sound like this is all about sustainability. What it's really about is using his patented technologies. He's got these fertilizers that have got, you know, that are too expensive than the traditional fertilizers. And it's about putting out of business his competition. That would be the smallholder family owned farms. Wow. All right. So we, we have the energy sector. We've got the food sector uh, somewhere has got to be in the middle of all of this. Uh, George Soros, his family, his name comes up all the time. I know he's been heavily involved in the election, uh, shall we call it interference uh, uh, industry, shall we say? Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, certainly. So we were a little uh, skeptical whether George Soros might even make it through the publication of this book. Uh, he is 93 and he's getting pretty up there in years. Unfortunately, we found that he's got five kids, uh, one of whom some of your uh, viewers may be familiar with, Alexander Soros. Each of them is more radical than the last. Now, Alexander Soros has just assumed control of his father's $25 billion dark money fortune. And uh Alex Soros has said that he is going to be funding causes like abortion and uh, election integrity. You know, <laughs> interference is a better term for it, as you said. But uh, he'll be funding elections for the next 50 years if he lives to the age of his father. It's just it's startling. It's frightening, really, to think at the enormous amount of control and power these billionaires have and that they all seem to be on the wrong side of the issues. I'm sure behind it all is more power, more control, more money. But underneath all of this, Seamus, isn't the the whole effort to restrict information uh, and to label anything that opposes them as misinformation, isn't this all part of the scheme as well? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jody. So information is probably one of the most important industries that these guys are trying to take control of and have taken control of in a lot of ways. I mean, everybody is, you know, is familiar with the censorship uh, industrial complex and getting deplatformed and shadow banned. A lot of people watching right now have might have been shadow banned themselves just for telling the truth. Um, but what most people aren't familiar with is where the information sector is going. And that's with this artificial intelligence. I mean, 
people have heard of ChatGPT and maybe OpenAI. Just last week, OpenAI fired its CEO, this guy named Sam Altman, and his vision for the future is quite alarming. And uh, he just got scooped up. He wasn't unemployed for long. He got scooped up by Microsoft. Now he'll be working with the Microsoft engineers on how to bring about this dystopian reality where everybody's put out of work and uh, you know various algorithms are doing your job for you. Um, and, and the end goal of all of this is basically a socialist type system with universal basic income. Yeah, that's what I want to get into. Uh, in fact, can you stick around for the uh, after the break? I'd like to continue this conversation. Can you hang with us a little bit longer? Sure. Okay. All right. I want to go further into this, where all this is taking us, and get more of your insight. We're speaking with Seamus Bruner, author of a brand new book, Controligarchs. Fascinating topic. And we will cover much more of it on the other side of this break. So, friends, don't go anywhere. Much, much more to cover, much more coming your way right after the break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Most of us have wrestled with deep questions about the meaning of life at one time or another. Questions like, why are we here? What has gone wrong with our world? Is there any hope? And how does it all end? Thankfully, David Clausen, director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, has carefully answered each of these tough questions in his latest publication titled An Introduction to Worldview. With 81% of evangelical church attendees claiming to hold a biblical worldview and only 21% actually holding a biblical worldview, resources like this are more important than ever. With this new resource, we invite you, your family, and your church to evaluate what makes up a worldview to see how a biblical worldview provides the most satisfying answers to life's biggest questions. To read the full publication and to see other resources from FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview, visit frc.org slash worldview. Again, that's frc.org slash worldview. Don't miss Family Research Council's new podcast, Outstanding. Brought to you by FRC's team at The Washington Stand, This podcast is designed to examine top news stories and cultural issues from a distinctly biblical worldview with an aim to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Join host and senior fellow for biblical worldview, Joseph Backholm, as he examines recent developments and cultural phenomena through the lens of scripture and explores how Christians should respond. New guests join the podcast every week to unpack the headlines and discuss what's going on in the world. Topics range from recent political developments to social issues and spiritual battles. We invite you to follow along with these critical conversations as we release new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. You don't want to miss it. To listen, go to WashingtonStand.com slash podcast slash outstanding and be sure to look for the Outstanding Podcast on your favorite podcasting app today. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Washington Watch. We are continuing a fascinating conversation with Seamus Bruner, author of the recently released book, Controligarch, exposing the billionaire class, their secret deals, and the globalist plot to dominate your life. Absolutely fascinating. Seamus, thank you for hanging over the break. break. We appreciate it very much. All right, let's, let's, talk, let's go further into this. Americans are still... I think trying to wade through and understand the effects of social media. 
uh, and the effects, the impact, really, that it has on our lives, uh, particularly over, you know, the first part of this millennium. We've seen it. But let's go to Facebook, right? Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he is trying to really uh, add more influence to things like Facebook and some of these other uh, technologies that the meta user participates in. Kind of bring us up to speed on what is happening with Zuckerberg. Sure. So since it's very founding, and a lot, you know, some viewers may have heard about this. Since it's very founding, Facebook has been an addiction-based business model. It addicts its users, everything from the color scheme of the app to the sound of the notification. It creates a, a process that, you know, that floods your brain with a effectively a drug called dopamine and so that you get addicted to the rush of getting notifications. Now, uh, attorneys general across the country, I think over 40 attorneys general have filed suit against Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, saying that this addiction-based business model is a problem. I mean, executives have said that Mark Zuckerberg knows that that's how his business works. Okay, now what are the effects of that? Well, it's not just that you're spending more time on social media. It has a lot of bad effects on you and your kids, you uh, depression, uh, even suicide studies have linked to uh, extended use of social media. And so that's a big problem, of course. But then there's the censorship and, you know, the locking down of information, especially around a critical time like an election. Um, that's a huge problem. And then where Mark Zuckerberg is taking this addiction based business model, according to the attorneys general, is He's making this kind of virtual reality. And a lot of people think that, oh, well, I'm never going to put the headset on and I'm never going to you know, do this and that like in the virtual cyberspace. I'm going to avoid that. But kids are getting addicted to it. It's got uh, you know, video game applications, but it's actually uh, moving in towards an adult life where your job may be requiring you to attend meetings instead of via Zoom, via the metaverse. And once you get sucked in, you may never be able to get out. So are these people working in cahoots with one another? I mean, you, we're talking about Zuckerberg, uh, Bezos, uh, Bill Gates, George Soros. Are, are they somehow working independently or is there some sort of cooperation among them all to take over virtually every sector of our lives? They're absolutely coordinating. I mean, they, you know, in some some ways they're competitors in other ways they're allies and partners. Uh, the fifth guy on the cover that a lot of people haven't heard of but really need to know who he is is Klaus Schwab. He's the founder, CEO, chairman of the World Economic Forum. Now, some people have heard of Davos. Every year you kind of see the stories come up in January about all these wealthy folks who fly on their private jets to Switzerland to lecture us about climate change. But we tracked down every single document and white paper, and it's all very boring, and they kind of hide it in nice terms like sustainability and diversity and equity and inclusion. But what they're really working on and cooking up in Davos is the next scheme to control your life. And so, you know, with the farms and the Bill Gates takeover, a lot of that is uh, happening in Davos, where they say that you got to ban these certain types of fertilizers or you need to go uh, green by the year 2030. And then that gets rolled out to the politicians who also go to Davos, where they kind of hobnob with the corporate elite. And then they roll out the policies that end up. But, you know, when you hear about gas stove bans or uh, gas vehicle bans coming to the U.S., California has announced a gas vehicle ban. That's all cooked up in Davos and Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, George Soros, 
Jeff Bezos, they're all members of the World Economic Forum. They each deliver the keynote address at various times or speak on various subjects in the in the small working group meetings. And a lot of it's hidden from the press. And the last thing I'd say about it is you'll notice that none of these guys are elected. We never voted for Bill Gates. We didn't vote for George Soros. But and because they're unelected, they're unaccountable. And so we don't have control over them. They've got control over us. Wow. A great point. Uh, There's so much shocking information in this book, I'm sure, and we just don't have time right now, but I'm sure uh, there were certain parts that were more shocking to you than others. But let's talk about, in the last minute or so that we have, uh, our our listeners, our viewers right now, is there anything that can be done against these schemes uh, that the the woke, ultra-wealthy are trying to force on us? Well, the number one thing you can do is arm yourself with the facts, with the truth, and and spread the truth as far and as wide as you possibly can. I mean, what we see, because they always uh, change the schemes and they change the branding. It used to be global cooling, then it became global warming, then it became climate change. And the same thing with Agenda 2030. It used to be Agenda 21. Uh, When the people learn what they're up to, they have to change, they have to recalculate, they have to try again another way. And so we just need to keep spreading the truth as far and as wide as possible. All right, Seamus, where can people get a copy of your book? Well, if you want to avoid Amazon, Jeff Bezos's website, uh, you can go to controlagarchsbook.com. It's C-O-N-T-R-O-L-I-G-A-R-C-H-S book.com. All right, Controlagarchs, Seamus Bruner, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jody. All right, friends, don't go anywhere. More Washington Watch on the other side of the break. Dr. Paul Jaley from Plymouth Rock Foundation will join me for a special Thanksgiving discussion. This is something you don't want to miss, something that no longer, for the most part, is even being taught. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this break. Are you a pastor or ministry leader? Then join Family Research Council's Association of Churches and Ministries. This community is for pastors and ministry leaders who are united in refusing to hide their faith in Jesus from those that would try to silence us. Together, we choose to stand on God's Word, no matter the cost. As we face an increasingly hostile culture, the Association of Churches and Ministries provides a powerful platform to come together, grow, and be equipped for the ministry God has entrusted to you. By joining this collective, you gain exclusive access to invaluable resources, updates from Washington, D.C. to your leadership and ministry team, special discounts on FRC events, and much more. Together, we will stand firm, united in faith, unyielding in truth. Don't miss your chance to be a part of something greater. Visit acm.frc.org and become a member today. Are you passionate about living out your faith in the public square? Are you invested in rebuilding America's spiritual foundations? We are too. Here at Family Research Council, we have made it our mission to champion the kingdom of God by advancing faith, family, and freedom in our nation and culture. Would you consider joining us? Each day, we work to educate spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives, proclaim truth on cancel-resistant platforms, promote a biblical worldview, 
in public policy and culture and engage believers to get involved. Together, we can work towards a prevailing culture in which all human life is valued, families flourish, and religious liberty thrives. To get involved, you can donate to FRC by texting the word GIVE to 67742. Again, text GIVE to 67742. Are you tired of the mainstream media censoring Christian and conservative voices? Are you looking for news about the most important topics of the day presented to you through the lens of biblical truth? FRC has the answer. The Washington Stand. The Washington Stand is Family Research Council's outlet for news and commentary from a biblical worldview, covering issues from abortion, sexuality, and religious liberty, to education, to what's happening on Capitol Hill and around the world. The Washington Stand reports on the top stories affecting faith, family, and freedom that the mainstream media doesn't want you to know about. Subscribe today to receive the latest news from The Washington Stand in your inbox every weekday morning by texting TWS to 67742 or by visiting WashingtonStand.com. Again, that's TWS to 67742. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss, and honored to be sitting in for Tony this afternoon, and thank you for joining us as well. Well, as we head into the weekend, and of course the House is in recess until after Thanksgiving, but I just want to give a reminder to encourage each of you to pray for the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and his family. I know him well. I served with him in Congress. He is deeply committed to his faith, deeply committed to his family, and is, of course, to our country. And he's in a position right now where he and Congress as a whole, they're just facing so many issues, urgent issues, that will demand tremendous focus and wisdom and courage. And that's why we at FRC are doing so, and we are asking you to join us in praying for Speaker Mike Johnson and his family. So I'm going to ask, if you will, to join us uh, by signing a pledge Simply text the word SPEAKER to 67742, SPEAKER to 67742, or if you prefer, you can go online to frc.org slash house speaker. We want to encourage Mike Johnson and let him know how many people all across the country are praying for him and his family. All right, as I discussed earlier in the program, There are so many public schools today that spend, frankly, so much time not focused on the basics of education, but instead indoctrinating students on how to bow down to what we refer to as the unholy trinity. That would be radical LGBT, abortion, and climate change ideology. And as the schools seem so bent on this type of indoctrination, it should not come as a surprise that we are seeing so many students struggling and they don't even know many of the things that they should know at this particular point of their age. So uh, how many don't even know why we celebrate Thanksgiving, for example? To many of them, it's just a day to eat turkey. And that's so unfortunate because there's so much that we can learn from the Pilgrims' early trials. In fact, all of us would do well to be reminded of that. So 
Here to give us a little history lesson and to provide some practical applications in this postmodern age is the executive director of the Plymouth Rock Foundation, Dr. Paul Jaley. Dr. Jaley, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you. Yes, yeah, good to be back with you at this well, time. Listen, especially... uh, that's right. No better time than right here. So let's just jump into it, Dr. Jaley. Jog our collective memories, if you will. Why did the Pilgrims decide to leave England? Well, of course, uh, the Pilgrim story has many breadths in it. And in fact, uh, by probably the best way to illustrate it is the fact that uh, the Pilgrim story is essentially a story of a church plant. The church had about 350 members in Leiden, Holland. By the time they left, with about 75 coming to the wilderness here of America, their endeavor was to plant a church. If you'd ask a question, what would a bunch of Christians, they weren't all Christians that were there and the some of them were not a part of their church, but how would you apply the Bible in the way they were trained by their own pastor and to live out their faith in every area of life? They had to apply the Bible to immigration when they went to Holland. They had to apply the Bible in how, how they would operate with economics once they got here, how to erect a civil government. You know, sometimes we, we forget that uh, the pilgrims were very well trained by their pastor and were very consciously attempting to follow the scriptures. They weren't perfect. They were like uh, all the rest of us. But I think that the critical aspect of that is they didn't just come here um, because of persecution in Holland, though that was certainly their, that uh, dictated their timing. But they came here, as they said, when they wrote their number one reason was to propagate and advance the gospel of the kingdom of Christ into these remote parts of the world, though we would be stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. And uh, uh, as a paraphrase of that statement, that meant that they wanted to be stepping stones for their children, their grandchildren, and future generations. And um, there's much to glean from the Pilgrim story. I've studied it for decades and, of course, live right here uh, near Plymouth, Massachusetts. And so I'm able to conduct tours often in costume, and and to help people understand their motives in coming here. Now, there's much more that can be said, especially when you think of Thanksgiving. And I just highlight that uh, the idea of Thanksgiving, this it took place as a three-day feast that took place with the Wampanoag in probably October of 1621. But uh, in order to understand the context of that Thanksgiving, we have to set the stage a bit. Uh, to recognize it. Uh, often in schools today, the pilgrims are barely mentioned, if at all. Uh, they're skipped over completely. The Puritans, when they come in 1630, are sometimes referred to, but not too positively. And uh, we we have this problem of amnesia in America when it comes to uh, history. And even today, often it is simply retold in a revised way or a very shallow way with some grains of truth. Uh, and yet we all know that if we're going to understand a Bible passage as Christians, we have to understand the context in which it was first written. What did it mean to the original hearers? Uh, we need to have uh, it uh, the same truth appearing in several books of the Bible if we're going to make it a real foundational truth. And indeed, then we can apply it to the present day. And this is what we've lost with history. We're not teaching history in its original context what it was like in the 1600s at that time period, so that we can really get this context. Uh, we're not often searching for primary sources to be able to confirm both facts and how they were, they were utilized at the time period. So in, indeed, this is something that uh, can be done by any family. We can start at any rate. Uh, we 
uh, in here in Plymouth Rock Foundation, we at plymrock.org, plymrock.org. Uh, we have a bookstore. We have many books that are available, especially a primary source document, Mort's Relation, uh, where this was uh, published in the 1980s. It was originally written in 1624, published uh, one of the first books the Pilgrims published at all. And um, they're uh, finally over in England. And yet it, this is brought into a uh, tremendous amount of footnotes in this volume. And you could teach the entire Thanksgiving story right around your dinner table from this one book. And it says not a long book, but we have a collector's edition uh, that we sell because we want to be able to get those primary sources back into the hearts and minds of America's families. And we need this message well, this is, Thanksgiving. Absolutely. This is such a critical part of our history that's not being taught anymore. And when you talk about the, the pilgrims coming over with the blessing of their pastors and well-grounded in the scripture, I see that spectacular painting behind you. Can't see it all, but there, there's a similar picture in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol of the pilgrims landing here on our soil and right in the center of the picture is the Bible, and their focus was on the Bible, I guarantee that painting would not be in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol were it not actual, true history. And what you're saying is absolutely true, but it's not being taught uh, as as you, you mentioned. Now, one other thing that the pilgrims, and many people may not be aware of this, actually had two types of prayer services, as I understand it. Can you fill us in, unpack yeah, uh, sure. Each of those types for us. Yeah, I mean, basically, the uh, Puritan and Pilgrim theology were somewhat similar. The Pilgrims had a different uh, concept of government, uh, but they had government by consent. That's really the heritage of our uh, um, American government eventually. Uh, but the Pilgrims uh, practiced uh, two kinds of prayer services. It came to be a pattern. One was a humiliation day of fasting and prayer, usually conducted in the spring. Uh, to pray and act, to confess any sin that may be in our hearts and to uh, pray for a bountiful uh, growing season, uh, uh, prosperity on economics and various areas of their needs as a church and a colony. And then in the fall, they would have a Thanksgiving service that would be thanking God for the provisions of that prayer in the spring. Now, the pilgrims conducted these as church uh, events within their own church calendar. And it's good to keep in mind that the pilgrims leaned on the Jewish calendar. So they, uh, of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, actually starts the year in March, uh, closer to where we would celebrate Passover uh, from the Old Testament. And then, of course, into the New Testament, uh, not the New Testament, but the new by, by the fall, I mean, uh, they would be uh, having a Thanksgiving service. We understand that scripturally, the Thanksgiving feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. And we recognize that um, most likely this pattern was drawn from Scripture uh, and uh, from the new year uh, in praying to God and in thanking God. Now, the Thanksgiving festival that took place, this three-day feast that took place in October of 1621, at least we we presume it's October, there's no exact date, but uh, based on this, was a bit different. It drew from both of these in their church, but this was uh, more a community-type celebration. Uh, in Leiden, Holland, as well as in England, there were harvest festivals, certainly taking their pattern, at least distantly, from what was conducted within the church, like a Feast of Tabernacles or Thanksgiving. Uh, but basically, this was the idea of still giving God thanks, giving thanks to God for all your provisions, uh, and then uh, 
uh, having this uh, blessing of this harmony that would be taking place in a community, bringing an entire community together, larger than the church, beyond the walls of the church. Uh, this is what really we look at with this. It's interesting to note that this was a three-day feast, uh, not a three-day fast. Uh, it um, had several elements which are quite unique. Uh, not the first people. The pilgrims aren't the first people to thank God when they arrived on a shore. They're certainly not the first people, uh, even among the natives. They would thank God for their provisions uh, and whatnot. But it has several unique uh, qualities about it. First of all, we need to see its context, because by October of um 1621, when this took place, this probably Thanksgiving would not have taken place as a community with the Wampanoag, 90 of the Wampanoag coming, according to Bradford's history there, with about only 51 or 52 pilgrims left alive after that first winter, only four adult women. Uh, And uh, you look at this and you say, this would not have taken place if two other events didn't take place prior to it. One was the fact that the pilgrims did come with a different kind of philosophy uh, than than what was called the doctrine of discovery, where you would go to a nation and you would take over its inhabitants, steal their land, uh, rape their uh, uh, ground and and whatnot, and then try to convert them. Uh, The pilgrims came uh, with a a desire to make peace. They were instructed to get peace with the natives, to do everything you can to inhabit— unused land of all kinds and to pay the pay for the land. So we have a tradition here in New England. You can look at all the private property deeds uh, that were done with the signature of the native chiefs uh, to see this. Now, this is interesting because that peace treaty was conducted in March of 1621. Uh, there was a peace between the natives and uh, the pilgrims. Now, the natives wanted it as well because they had had all kinds of issues with others, uh, and they had been had 22 of their own natives stolen and taken as slaves six years before the pilgrims came. So they weren't happy with the Europeans that were coming over for good reason. Uh, and so that was very significant. But even more significant, I think, was the meeting they had in August. You see, the pilgrims took some soil, uh, some corn out of the soil that they found, knowing that the seed they brought would not grow any corn. Therefore, they took it, and under common law, they had to promise each other that they would pay this back. And when they had that peace treaty, they did say they would pay it back uh, to uh, the Nauset tribe on the Cape Cod. And interestingly enough, one of the boys, uh, the undisciplined family, ran away and got uh, taken by the natives, and the natives informed Massasoit, who was the chief making the peace uh, with the pilgrims, that they had this boy. So now they had an opportunity to go and retrieve the boy, but also apologize. Apologize for the sins of their race, that previously this tribe had been robbed of 22 of their their men. They even saw a 100-year-old woman standing on the shore, wouldn't look at the uh, pilgrims, wouldn't look at the English, and kept sobbing. They asked why. She said she had been deprived of her children and grandchildren. And then you recognize that Bradford gives a an apology, that this was wrong, that they should not do this, and repays them for the uh, corn that they took. This is significant because this means this second event, a kind of a reconciliation and an apology, would pave the way for a three-day feast, think of it, with another culture that had been robbed of their own youth that were bitter and could easily have said, we have every reason to wipe this small group out. And here you have a recipe in American history. If this was taught in its context, we would be honoring the Native American for forgiving the sins of the race of the English and the Europeans so quickly and thanking the pilgrims for being willing to openly say their race 
was not proper. This is a recipe for harmony. How many families will join around Thanksgiving tables with friends and relatives? They don't agree with politically. They don't agree with in hardly any area. They may be Christians, non-Christians. So what? We have in America a, a small template of an example of uh, two cultures that came together friendly enough to feast together. The natives brought most of the food. The pilgrims didn't have a whole lot of food. They had uh, recreational games. We don't know all the details of those together for three days. You don't three for three days feast with someone you can't stand or someone you completely don't trust. And yet two cultures can come together, completely different beliefs uh, beyond all sides of it. And yet this can take place. This is the true legacy of Thanksgiving, the true significance of what we need to recognize here in America, rather than reacting with only bits and pieces of history, jumping to extremes. That's where we get um, the, the ideas of privilege and critical race theory and, and all those other kinds of things. We need to return and learning from history. I exhort families to get some of the primary sources of these things, and you can read them to individuals, especially Mort's Relation, this classic uh, first edition that we have, uh, even in our bookstore, plimrock.org, and then read it to your children. Let's start a new legacy right, Dr. Jaley. from the heart. Yeah, we've got less than a minute left. Give, it, give us uh, your website again so people can go there. Uh, it's a uh, P-L-Y-M-R-O-C-K.org, Plymrock.org, Plymouth Rock Foundation. They can go right to the bookstore for any of these sources. But I can tell you, the significance of Thanksgiving in Plymouth could be a lesson and a message to this nation. Absolutely. Dr. Paul Jaley, thank you so much for uh, educating us further on the uh, pilgrims and the founding of this country. God bless you. Well, Happy I ask a blessing you. on all of this, this nation that we would bring harmony and unity in the midst of the strife that we have. And uh, ask each family, as you pray, God bless America, and let's pray for this nation. All right, that wraps up this edition of Washington Watch. Happy Thanksgiving to each of you. God bless you. We'll see you right after Thanksgiving. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 